Hello, and welcome to Tuesday Thanks, presented by Leeds Hospitality Group. I'm your host, Brian Proctor. Join me as we sit down to chat with yet another industry leader. Our guests come from a wide range of professions across the globe. We'll take the time to learn about their journey, where it started, and where they are today. We use this opportunity to allow the guests to thank an individual or individuals that played a key role in their career understand what they learned from the experience and how they have incorporated it into their own development and growth. Gratitude is strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness. Not only can it help your mental well-being, it can also improve your physical health. So join us as we share some great stories, thank a lot of wonderful people, and of course, share some laughs. Let's do this. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tuesday's Thanks. I'm excited to be joined today by Brian Leon, CEO at Choice Hotels of Canada. Choice Hotels Canada is one of the largest and most successful lodging franchisors in the country with more than 330 properties currently open. The Choice family of hotel brands provide business and leisure travelers with a range of high quality lodging options including limited to full-service hotels in upscale, mid-scale, and extended stay, and the economy segments. Brian, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Brian. It's my pleasure to uh, be here. I appreciate you having me. You know, as a Canadian who lives down here, I always got to get a couple Canadians in on the season. So I, I thank you for being the first one this season in season four to be on the show. So thank you so much for joining my me. My, my pleasure, and I'll, I'll try to avoid talk of hockey. Yeah, well, you know, as long as you're not talking about the Maple Leafs, I'm okay. It's likely where I'd be going. <laughs> but that's another. That's a whole other show I could do. Yeah, um, but uh, so listen, you're a young lad growing up in Ontario. You go to Western University, Ivy School of Business, get your Bachelor of Arts there. What leads you in that direction? Because, you know, as I've told other people, I'm always fascinated that, you know, how does a 17, 18-year-old kid decide their direction? Is Was there anything that did that for you or was that just going close to home? Yeah, gosh, I mean, it just is, it's difficult to say that I decided. It's kind of funny the way the dots kind of connect. When you look back in your career and you see sort of where you ended up, sometimes a little bit difficult to predict, but I, yeah, you're right. I went to the business school at Western, you know, and my dad was in the food service business. And so I kind of grew up with the food service and actually the franchising business all around me. So franchising was something that was always really of interest to me, probably for that reason, even back in, back in school, you know, when I was at Western, it was something I did a big research paper, you know, project on. And, and it just was, I was interested in the business. My, my first job in the hospitality industry was as a pizza maker at Mother's Pizza and kind of cut my teeth there when I was about 16 and worked there for a couple of years. But when I got out of business school, most of my friends went into banking or consulting or different fields like that. I bought a little restaurant in downtown Toronto and, you know, my, my dad helped me buy it. And it was kind of a, I would say a, a failing restaurant, very small little fast food place in the city. And that was, you know, and I kind of went, went into there and that was my start into the, into the restaurant business. So it was on the operations side. I think I had. I had plans and thoughts that it was going to be a big franchise chain. It never quite made it that far, but that was, that was my start. So wait a minute, right out of, like you graduate and then you, and your dad helps you buy an existing restaurant in downtown Toronto. 
Yeah, you know, it, it was funny. I was interviewing for different jobs and it was like consulting and the usual stuff that, that people would, would be doing. And I had more of a finance background coming out of Ivy, but it just kind of had it in the back of my head that it was just it was something I always, I don't know, for whatever reason, kind of thought I, you know, having my own business would be sort of a, a really fun, kind of a neat thing to do. And, and my dad was supportive of that, I think, because he he had spent his whole career, you know, running a business, business but it wasn't, it wasn't his own business. It was a, you know, big public company and he was kind of supportive of it. And it was just, it just was one of these things that just happened. It was, it was a guy named people in the, uh, in the restaurant industry in, uh, in Toronto will recognize this name, a guy named Harold Rosenberg, who owned a company called Ideal Food Service Equipment, Ideal was sort of the biggest suppliers of food service equipment and, and Harold was like an extended part of our family. He was very, very close family friend and he knew somebody that had this restaurant and I think he just, you know, knew that I was, you know, I was at that point looking at things to do and, and suggested it and kind of went down and made a deal with this guy to buy a, it was a little burger place in the Hudson Space Center, right at Young and Bloor in Toronto. And so it was, and I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I'm coming out of Western thinking I'm like, I'm smart. And I kind of thought I knew what I was doing. I didn't, I didn't have the foggiest clue. I mean, there's just lots, lots of stories about all of the hard lessons I learned running a little, running a little fast food place. Oh, I can imagine. And for my listener in Topeka, Kansas, Young and Bloor is a really good address in yeah. Toronto. Yeah. So, well, Young and Bloor, yeah. So like the 50 yard line of downtown Toronto, this was in the underground. So this was in like the subway underground of Toronto. And it was like a little 400 square foot. It was a yeah, some fast food place. I kind of came up with a rebranding idea for it. It was, it was called the Big Bite when I bought it. And uh, you know, I said it wasn't doing that well. And I changed the name to Humdingers, home of the Humburger. And uh, we had a little company mascot and we, we had a lot of fun with it. And it was, yeah, it was, it was in a trade. It was a great experience. I don't know that I would do it all over again that way. I think I probably, if I could do it all over, that might be a, a redo, but that business actually worked out quite well for me. The business did well. And when I had that, I ended up getting, doing a second restaurant and uh, did that one with, you know, with a partner and, and it didn't go so well. It was not a, I kind of, I kind of learned that you lose more money in a bad restaurant than you make in a good one. That was one of my one of my early lessons in the food service business, and it was good experiences and you know got a lot, a lot a lot of fun and a lot of a lot of learning, kind of managing your own P and L right from the right from the yep. start, and you know that part of it was was really interesting. And it must have been twenty four seven. I got to believe almost. Yeah. You. Yeah. You know, it, it was like, I mean, you think about the hours, I don't know how many hours I would have worked, but it would have been over a hundred you know, hours, hours a week. Like you're just, you're, you're in there all the time. And yeah. I was there for kind of all the waking hours of the restaurant. And so it's, uh, but you know, you're young and that's just kind of, kind of fits at that point in uh, in your career. So you're doing it today. That is awesome. Now, how long did you, I'm going to say survive because it is a battle. How yeah, long yeah. did you survive with that until you got smarter and said, I'm going to go work for somebody else? Yeah, yeah. Well, so what, what ended up happening is uh, I guess it was probably three to four years of that. I'm going to say maybe four years. So four years of that. And I ended up selling the restaurants and I had a broker. I met a broker who specialized in selling restaurants. It's a guy named Ron Scribner and Ron, Ron had a fascinating background and uh uh, just kind of stumbled upon him and he ended up selling my restaurants and in the course of selling the restaurants recruited me to become a restaurant broker 
And uh, so I had, to, I had to go out and get my real estate license. But the business that I worked for at the time was a company called Marsh Real Estate. And Marsh was a hotel and restaurant brokerage company. So I worked almost exclusively on the restaurant side. And, and I was at Marsh for probably, gosh, probably five, six years. And in the course of that, you know, sold or involved in the sale of over 200 restaurants in in Toronto. So that was that was an unbelievable learning experience. And uh, you know, if, if I knew what I knew after, you know, being in that role, you know, in terms of where I started with the restaurants, I would have taken an entirely different course. It was yeah, you know, find uh, you know different different opportunities, but it was again a great experience, a great opportunity to understand understand the P&L of restaurants, understanding valuation of restaurants, getting to deal with a whole bunch of entrepreneurs out there who are running their own businesses. And I was, yeah, I always was kind of fascinated uh, with, you know, kind of that entrepreneurial spirit that we see in, uh, in Canada. And, and in the course of doing that, I became a specialist in dealing with franchise businesses. So a lot of companies that would be smaller franchisors that might not have their own franchise department, I would actually do their franchise sales for them. So I would sometimes find locations for them, find franchisees and try to put those all together. And then I'd also do resales of businesses for other, you know, franchises. So companies like, for example, Second Cup uh, mm -hmm. or Select Sandwich or O'Tools back then, not around anymore, but we did an awful lot of O'Tools resales. So when, when those companies had franchisees that wanted to sell their, their businesses, they would often come to us and then we would, we would sell them for them. So it and was, uh, yeah. And was there a big difference in selling the franchise model versus like a one-off independent restaurant or, you know? Yeah, they, there, there was, you know, certainly from a standpoint of all of the additional steps you'd need to go through with a franchise business in terms of getting franchise or approvals. And uh, because you're dealing with not, not just that sale of the business asset, but entering into a, a franchise agreement. And, and so it was really an entirely separate step that you wouldn't have to go in go into when you were dealing with the independent businesses but the you know the franchise businesses one of the things i saw was the much higher levels of success of the franchise businesses than a lot of the independent ones that i'd see yeah and i guess you were really able to see which franchises were successful which which ones you know actually performed well versus the ones that you know probably aren't around anymore you know, I, I, I would say absolutely. But, and I think the other thing that, that I saw a lot of is the difference between a good franchisor and a bad franchisor. Mm -hmm. and, and that's one of the things, and uh, actually I hadn't really thought about that until you mentioned it, but it's probably one of the things that really I've taken with me over the years is, you know, having that kind of awareness of the difference between the companies that are doing it right and those that, uh, that aren't doing it right. It is, it's probably enlightened me a little bit as to what, you know, what I think is really important in being a franchisor, being on that franchisor side as I've been for, for so many years now. Yeah, I've always, you know, I've, I did a, a small stint, a short stint with Starwood as a VP of franchise ops for North America. And uh, so I haven't been involved in the franchise, obviously, to the level you have been. But I was always amazed when I would hear franchisees complain about lack of sales or lack of this or lack of that. And then when you actually went and visited the property, you could see that they weren't using the tools that were available to them. They had their own thought of what the brand was and yeah. what the level of service should be. 
and yet if they use the tools, you know, and then you, you mirror that to a guy or a gal who's got a franchise that says, Hey, I'm taking advantage of everything that Starwood mm -hmm. could offer. Mm -hmm. Then they tend to do very well. So I'm, I'm sure you saw that from day one there and even to today as well. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you definitely do. And you know what you see, you know, unfortunately in the world of franchising, it's a lot better today, but it, you know, back in the early days, prior to franchise legislation that we have, you know, in, in the majority of Canada, it was a little bit like the Wild West where, you know, small franchisors could, could dupe people into signing franchise agreements and giving the franchisor a whole ton of control and fees and not great return for the franchisees. And, uh, you know, I think the, you know, the big key to being successful as a franchisor, there's only really one big key is that your franchisees have to be successful. If, mm -hmm. if they're not, then you, you don't have a business and, yeah. you know, and that not in the long term, anyways. And that is, that is something that's as relevant today as it was back then. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, is, is, is one of those things that, you know, un unfortunately all too often, you know, franchisors lose sight of, of what's most important. Yeah. So, all right. So you're on this real estate kick now for, I think you said you stayed with them for about five or six years. Yeah. Yep. What's the next jump after that? Yeah, so it's interesting. So in, in the course of in the course of doing that work, I sold a couple of restaurants for a guy named Neil Shopswitz. Neil Neil's father, Izzy, was if you remember, you know, remember the Shopsies chain, you would know that in, in Canada, Shopsies hot dogs and restaurants. Oh, yeah. and, uh, and Neil had opened together with, with some partners a very first great Canadian bagel store. And and he called me up one day and said, like, I got you know, I've got this this one store and it was in Toronto. It's up in Young and Finch in Toronto. And, and I, you know, I think it's something that could have some opportunities for expansion. And, and it was really quite interesting because it was a, I mean, back then there wasn't really a lot of bagel stores out there. I mean, this is sort of the very early, probably around 1990 or so it was, you know, the idea of bagel stores was just kind of starting to, you know, to exist. And, and this had come out of uh, Neil's partner and Neil had, had three partners that were all brothers and they owned in the U.S. a Great American Bagel. They were Canadians, but they had started this uh, concept called the Great American Bagel. And it was a, you know, a concept built around uh, the idea that they would have bakeries within the store. They would you know, put out a great quality product and get a lot of people to come in and not just come into the uh, come into the store to sit and have a bagel sandwich or, or an individual bagel, but to take them home. And that was a real critical part of it is when you looked. So when I, when I went to look at this first store, what was interesting about it is that the location had been taken over from a failing muffin store. And I remember the numbers really kind of, you know, kind of vividly back then it was a you know, muffin store was, was just doing a few thousand dollars a week in sales. It was struggling, not really able to make it. And, and this bagel store came in and was doing about double the sales. But when you looked at the sales that they were doing, about half of it was people coming in and leaving with a bag full of a dozen bagels and take home cream cheese. And, and that was really interesting. And it was like kind of a light bulb went off for me when I saw it. I kind of thought, boy, this is, this is really interesting. I can see why these guys think that there is, that there's something there. And the stores in the U.S., it was quite interesting. They were in, from a real estate standpoint, they were just in everyday strip plazas, you know, because one of the things I've learned looking at all restaurants, food service, business, fast food in particular, 
So location was so critically important when you just have a pure fast food business. If you're running a coffee shop or something like that, you've got to be on you know, the best location. You've got to pay big rents. You've got to, you probably want corners and patios and all that kind of stuff. With this concept, uh, it, it was such a destination for people coming and getting their take-home take home food in addition to coming and, and you know, staying in for a sandwich that it made the economics of it quite different than a regular food service concept. And it was, and that was kind of the light bulb because it looked like a concept where you could have a lot of opportunities to find affordable real estate, which is a huge challenge in you know, food service chains that are trying to expand. That's always a big, big challenge. And it was a you know, pretty efficient use of space. It was a really good product cost because when you're producing from scratch in the store, your variable cost to produce it was very low. So for a lot of reasons, it just looked to me to be something that that had some legs. And I started to work with you know with with them as a consultant when I was at at Marsh doing the you know it was essentially a, you know doing the sale of their franchises for them, but just as a on that sort of third party consulting basis. But we got the first our first franchisee opened in Pickering, and it was in a little strip plaza in Pickering, and it just took off. And it was just like a huge success and kind of looked at it and thought like, this is, you know, we think we've got a bit of a tiger by the tail here. And there was starting to be other in the U S in particular, other bagel chains sprouting up. So we said, no, let's, I'm going to go all in on this. So left, left what I was doing at Marsh and jumped in, you know, full steam, opened up an office in the back of one of the initial stores. And we started to try to expand it from there. And it was, you know, we entered into the first franchise agreements and, you know, we went from, I'm going to say, after year one, I'm going to say three stores to eight stores to 39 stores to 110 stores to 160 stores. That was our kind of trajectory over that initial period. So it was, it was remarkable growth. We ended up opening in uh, Russia. We opened in, in England. And, uh, and we had a great run and the run, the run ended, but we had a great, we had a, we had a great run for a, for a while and a, and a ton of fun and an, an unbelievable learning experience for me. And uh, so let me ask a question because the important thing about bagels is the water, right? And the water creates, like, if you look at a Montreal bagel yeah, yeah. and versus a New York bagel yep, yep. versus a, anywhere else in the country bagel. Yeah. They're all, you know, especially the Montreal and New York ones, they're significantly different. So different. from a standardization, how does how does that work with something like that where you're all across the world? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things you'd see is like with the Montreal bagels and, and the water, I mean, that is, you know, a process that they're using and they're typically boiling in water or honey water and then they're cooking in a wood wood fired oven. And it mm -hmm. gives you a very distinctive kind of a type of bagel, very yeah. texture to it. That was not what we had. We had more of the old New York style, which is a little bit more of a bready bagel, which was actually a lot better for making sandwiches with. Because you think mm -hmm. about if you've ever had an egg salad sandwich on a Montreal bagel, you take one bite of it and the egg squirts in all directions because it's just, you know, you, you can't get any of it. So great Canadian, the bagels were not boiled bagels like that, uh, like that process, uh, but they were made from scratch in the stores. Quality control was a challenge, but it was something that we were, you know, pretty pretty focused on. But because they were made from scratch in the stores, I mean, the quality was generally at a level beyond what you could get in the grocery stores and in uh, other places that were using like a Bake Off product. Yeah, and a lot of 
our even our competitors at the time, even the bigger chains in the U.S., well, some of some of them were using a Bake Off product. And you know the advantage of a Bake Off product, obviously, is it's way simpler. You don't need all of the space and the capital in the store and the expertise uh, of a baker. But your variable cost per bagel at the time it was probably at least double if you had the Bake Off product. So that's not such a big deal when you're selling a bunch of bagel sandwiches. If you're selling a sandwich for four bucks and your bagel cost is 25 cents instead of 10 cents, it's not a big deal. Right. But if you're selling a dozen bagels and your variable cost on those is double, that makes a big, big difference. So that was one of the things that made Great Canadian you know, so successful is that it had that you know, kind of half of the business was just all of this, all of this takeout. The other thing that was good about that is that from a day part standpoint, when you looked at the concept, and this is, again, one of the things you see in a lot of food service concepts that, that maybe don't have long-term legs is sometimes they just don't have broad enough day part appeal. Like they mm -hmm. might have a great offering at lunch, but nobody's going to go there in the morning. Nobody's going to go there at night. You got to pay a lot of money for real estate and it's, and it's difficult to make it on one day part. With the bagels, it was you had people coming in all through the day, trickling in to get their dozens and their take home. Uh, you had people coming in for breakfast just to get a, you know, a, a single bagel in the morning. You had people coming in for the bagel sandwiches at lunch. So it was that combination of broad day part appeal and, and the different segments you're appealing to that really made the stores in the early days do very well. Yeah. Well, that's cool. That, no, that's, that's an interesting thing because again, when you were, you know, when I was stalking you or researching you, mm -hmm. I saw the, the bagel thing and I said, I got to understand how that works from a, you know, a thing because I know about the water. So you had a good run. You had like about an eight year run, right? With the great bagel. Yeah. yeah I was there. So I, you know, I started, when I started off, it was like, there was two of us and there was the, 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 the guy that was the president and there was, I was a director of franchising and leasing. And then over a period of time, I became uh, the, the, the president uh, and CEO of the company. And, uh, but we went through a, a great run and then the bagel business generally uh, took an abrupt, a very abrupt negative turn. And I would say that it coincided largely with the Atkins diet, you know, Dr. Atkins, you know, telling mm -hmm. people that, you know, carbohydrates were, yep. were not were not a good thing. And, and that actually had a meaningful difference. But al alongside that, we started to get a whole bunch of competitors that we didn't have so much before. So, you know, you know, in Canada, I mean, Tim Hortons was part of it. But I would say probably for us, the bigger part was just that the grocery stores that never used to have good bagel programs actually started to do a pretty good job of bagels. Yeah. And so, you know, in the early days for us, like you go to a grocery store and you would go have to go into the freezer case to get bagels. And, uh, you know, and, and, and as that evolved and the grocery stores came up with pretty acceptable product, I think people were just less likely to go out of their way to do that special trip to our stores. And, you know, so what we saw is just, and it wasn't just us, it was the entire industry. It, it just became more and more challenging on a top line, from a top line standpoint, you know, we saw some major, you know, deterioration in that bulk business of people coming into the stores. And that made it very difficult to justify having, you know, the, in, in a lot of the stores, the full bakeries and, uh, yeah. and all the overhead that comes, uh, that comes with that. So, you know, for us, it became, you know, we had to go through a, a, a difficult restructuring. 
and uh, we had to, uh, you know, purge a number of stores. A number of stores just couldn't make it, and the locations weren't weren't right anymore. So that was a, it was a pretty painful experience to go through. I mean, it was probably for me the most challenging thing I've ever had to deal with in in my career and not so much just because of a lot of work doing it it's just because of the people like involved like you got franchisees who you know we were all we were all so happy with the way things were going for such a good long time and then all of a sudden they're not going they're not going well and and in a lot of cases you've got franchisees and these are people that you become friends with and they've you know they've they've relied on you and, and they're counting on the franchisor to try to make sure that they've got a you know a good business that's gonna you know that's gonna gonna that's going to serve them well. And it just, it just wasn't, you know, it just was, was a really, really difficult time. Yeah. So, uh, so then you leave the bagel world yeah. and you jump over to booster juice. Now I am not familiar with booster juice. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a juice bar chain, very similar to, I mean, you're in the U S so it would be like Jamba juice in the, in the U S okay. and, and I, you know, I had known the uh, founders of the company just through the industry and, and, you know, they were looking to, you know, to, you know, strengthen their, I guess they, they were, they were growing at a pretty fast rate. They were sort of early stage, but growing at a fast rate and, uh, looking for somebody that had some franchising experience to come in and and it looked you know it looked to me like like something that was a a concept that you know for in some ways for a lot of the same some of the same reasons as I like the bagel business when it looked at the at the juice bar business what was really good about it was space efficiency and labor efficiency and and that day part that day part thing that people would come into a juice bar they'd come in at seven in the morning they'd come in at 10 in the morning they'd come in at lunch and so when you think about a juice bar versus other types of food service, you could, you, I mean, in, in the day, you could have a juice bar doing $2,000 a day. And you could do that with just maybe two or three staff. I mean, mm -hmm. if you were doing a sandwich shop or if you're doing a burger shop or something like that, and you're going to have that same amount of money all concentrated into a tight period of time. You're going to need a lot of people to be able to be able to do that. So it was, it was very efficient from a, a space standpoint. You could go into very small real estate and from a labor standpoint, you could run, you, know, you run the stores very efficiently. So did that and enjoyed that. But when I was there, uh, was approached by a placement firm about the leadership role at uh, Choice Canada, Choice Hotels Canada. And, uh, you know, and hotels weren't really, they weren't my, my expertise, but I knew a little bit about the hotel business from the work I'd done in Marsh. My dad had been involved in the hotel business. So peripherally, I was, you know, sort of aware of it. And, and it was, I guess the big thing, it was, it was a franchise business mm -hmm. and, and it was, and that was really the common denominator. And, you know, when I looked at, looked at choice, it was one of the larger, you know, one of the larger franchisors in the, in the country. And it was, you know, kind of just in terms of the overall size and scope of the business and, you know, at a sort of a different stratosphere for me. So it was, it was something that I, I, I didn't really see coming, but I was glad they approached me and, uh, and I've been at choice for 17 years and, yeah, it's, and thinking about that sort of a funny story, the way these things that you could never predict the way these things, the, these things evolve. But when I was back at Western, we had to do a major research project on something. And it was like a full term kind of a paper that we had to do. And I did my project on, it was on franchising, but specifically it was on franchise associations. And, you know, you, you see in front within franchise organizations, associations, you know, forming of, of franchisees and, you know, kind of the role of those, you know, how those have a different role in different types of organizations. So anyways, and back when I, when I, 
um, I'm doing the research for this and I come across a lawyer in Toronto who specialized in franchise law and he had written an article on it and it was a great article. So I, I think at the time, as you would back then, I think I wrote him a letter and it was <laughs> yeah, a little, little different than yeah. today, but I think I wrote him a letter and his name was Frank Zaid and Frank was at Osler Hoskin Harcourt and he was sort of a young lawyer, but he was one of the real pioneers in franchise law in Canada and a brilliant lawyer. And, and I said, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing this paper. I read your article. And, and so he got in touch with me, gave me a call and we talked and he said, look, why don't you come down to my office? He said, when we were writing this article, you know, we, we came across a whole bunch of research. We haven't even gotten into it. It's all sort of sitting in a pile somewhere. Why don't you come in and you can have a look at it all. So, oh, so wow. I did. And so I, I go down to their office and it was in right in downtown Toronto. He sets me up in an office for the day, loads me with all of this paper. It was like some great great research, you know, great ideas of where I could go, other people that I could talk to. So anyway, so we go through all of that. I end up finishing the report and, and I told Frank, I'd sent him a copy when I was all done. And Frank was the publisher of a book called the Canadian Franchise Guide. So this Canadian Franchise Guide was, I guess he, it was sort of like the encyclopedia of franchising in Canada. It was kind of the go-to resource for, you know, for lo the law the community in particular, but for franchisors as well in franchising. So I sent it to Frank and he called me up and said, look, we read your report. We think it's good. Can do you mind if we publish this as part of the Canadian franchise guide? So I thought, well, that was pretty cool. So it was you know, fresh out of Ivy and I'm, I'm, I'm a published. And author. you're published. <laughs> that sounds like, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah. It was, you know, so that, so that was really, really good. And as I got into the world of franchising, Frank and I would run into each other from time to time and just at different industry events. And, uh, and he remembered me and we'd, we'd, we'd chit chat. So we just kind of knew each other. And when I was approached by, by choice, I remember I had to go down to Washington to meet their senior people down there and I was meeting with them and I'm in the middle of the meeting and on my resume, I've got, you know, that I wrote this thing that was published by Osler. And the guy looks at me, he said, oh, so he said, that's Frank Zaid. And I said, like, how on earth do you know Frank Zaid? He said, Frank is the lawyer that did the deal to create Choice Hotels Canada. He's on our board of directors. And uh, so, wow. so it's funny. So they, they literally left the meeting, called up Frank. Frank said, yes, Brian's a good guy. And then they, and they ended up hiring me and Frank is on our, on the board of directors of Choice Canada to this day. So we remain, you know, good, you know, very good, good friends and, and good business colleagues. Small world, and you just never know who is going to come around again to uh, just, help you along the way. That is too yeah. funny. You never so know now, how the thoughts are going to connect. Do you, now, you joined them as a managing director, I think, in 07, right? I think That's somewhere. right, yeah. So do you remember, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot, and if you don't know, you don't know, but how many hotels did you have then in 07 versus how many you have now? Versus I would say about two, two, I say 220, 230, something like that. So you've had some good yeah. growth. So, so we have. I mean, one of the... One of the things that we've done by design is, is, is not just grow by adding more hotels, but, you know, we, we've also made decisions to eliminate a lot of hotels from our system as well. Yeah. 
And that and that's you know one of the things that that we you know we realized. I mean, our strategy you know for many years has been you know around doing that by ele elevating our system, by adding great new hotels, you know, adding to our value proposition for our franchisees, but also at the same time you know recognizing it as a franchise or you know in a system like this, particularly in the hotel space. You know, it is, you know, we've got assets that that often need capital, you know, you know, and uh, you, you really need to be sort of diligent about that ongoing, you know, on ongoing maintenance of the system and making sure that the hotels that you've got are all living up to the uh, to the brand standards. And, and so it is something that we've been pretty proactive about, you know, over a long period of time. But we've, you know, in the last, in the, in the last, well, gosh, probably in the, you know, since I joined the company, we probably added over 200 hotels. But, but, you know, taking others out and, and some, some hotels you just lose, you don't want to lose, but you just, you just lose them anyways. And, you know, one of the things that's quite different about the hotel space than, than food service is it's really not so much what you would refer to as business format franchising. Like you would, you would never see a McDonald's close down and become a Burger King. You know, and uh, but or you, and you, you and you certainly wouldn't see a McDonald's franchisee also own Burger Kings, but in our business, you know, some of our franchisees will own Holiday Inn properties, or they'll own you know Hilton or Marriott properties, and and that is it's 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 very different uh, from a franchise standpoint. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's even in the managed side of the business too, but franchise is the same. I mean, sometimes you're the you're the result of being successful in that then the owner will say, all right, you guys have done such a great job making me money. My property is now worth five times what I paid for. I'm going to sell it. And you never know who's buying it. And that buyer may have yeah. a, you know, mm -hmm. tie to another franchise or another brand. And, you know, yeah. I, I saw that. I mean, we transitioned at Starwood hundreds and hundreds of hotels in and out of the systems. Yeah. Some because you want them, like you say, gone because they're not adhering to brand. Yeah. And others, it is just what it is. And what what you learn very quickly is not to take it personally. Yeah. Right. It's it's just business. And for every one you get, you're going to lose one. And it just yeah. comes and goes. And yeah. I always remember some people were just take it so personally. And it's like guys, come on. It is what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for us, you know, one of the things that's really important for us at Choice is to have great relationships with our franchisees. And it's, you know, it's kind of funny within the world of franchising, you don't always see that. And it's, it sure makes it a whole lot more pleasant for everybody. If we get along, we've got like, we got great franchisees in our system. We have genuine friendships with our franchisees. We like spending time with them. And, uh, you know, and that's, I, I think it just makes business so much more fun. And, and for all of our team, you know, all of our team, you know, we, and we hire for it. Like we, you know, we have to get people in that understand that we are in business to serve the interests of our franchisees. You know, we're a hundred percent franchise organization. If we do not have happy, successful franchisees and we don't have a business. And, and that's, you know, that's something that's sort of core to the philosophies that we've got at, at choice. Yeah. We were fortunate in our franchise leadership at Starwood in that we kind of took a different approach than say some of the other companies in that we said, listen, let's be a coach instead of a cop, mm -hmm. meaning rather than just going in there and saying, these are all the things that are wrong, fix it or vote, yeah. you know, Hey, here's some tools you can use. And we designed revenue management tools and all these kind of things. And we would do cluster meetings with yeah. franchise operators, you know, all the franchisees in Philly could come into one meeting and learn more. And we just felt that was the way to go versus, yeah. you know, so we called it coach versus cop. And I thought we were making some pretty good inroads and that, you know, and then the, Big M came and bought us and, and, and away yeah. we went type of deal. But yeah, yeah, I agree with you fully on that. I mean, you've got to be a part. It's a partnership. 
Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. And as I said, we've got, we're, we're, we're lucky. We have great franchisees across the country and we have, we've got a, a very active franchise advisory board that provides us a lot of guides. I mean, coming through the pandemic, I mean, it was, there has never been a time in certainly in our company of choice, probably in my whole career where I've seen a greater level of collaboration between franchisor and franchisees than through the pandemic, you know, because, yeah. you know, we're all kind of shell-shocked. None of us had seen anything like this before. You know, and uh, we had a, everybody just rolled up their sleeves and, and just tried to support each other. And our franchise advisory board was extremely active, you know, with us. I probably talked to the chair of our most nights, like, and, and, and it just was, it was really helpful. I think for all of us, because we're all in this uncharted territory and, uh, uh, you know, just trying to, trying to make the best of a real tough situation. One of the things that when the pandemic hit, I remember sitting down with our team in the office and. You know, and collectively we said, like, we don't really know how long this is going to, this, this is going to go or how deep this is going to go, but our objective is going to be that whenever we come out of this, we want our franchisees to look back on this time and say, choice was a great partner for us. That was kind of our lens on it. So whatever we can do to, you know, to serve their interests, you know, through this time in ways that were totally different than what we were used to doing and yeah. you know, it was helping them navigate through government programs and all sorts of sorts of stuff like that. But it was, yeah, certainly an interesting time. Well, and Canada took a much different approach to COVID than it was down here, obviously. Yeah. You know, I still have family and friends up there, obviously. And some of the, you know, it was just like night and day type of thing. So yeah. I can only imagine. So listen, yeah. it's too, I could go on speaking to you for hours here, but I know you have a life no, um, and, and, and a company to run. So it is Tuesday after all. And yeah. I'm going to, pass the baton over to you and allow you to thank some folks that have helped you along the way in this fantastic franchise career you've had. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, like, I mean, for, for me, I mean, what I would say is my, kind of my, my mentor in business, my mentor in life has always been my, my daddy passed away a few years ago, but he was a remarkable, he had a, quite a, quite an interesting career in the food service business and, and was a great great guidance to, to me over so many, you know, over so many years, he was, his career was sort of interesting. He met Colonel Sanders back in the, it was around 1959, 1960, and then was involved in bringing KFC into Canada. And, and they went on, his company went on to become the biggest hospitality company in the, in the country. Yeah. And then they ultimately bought uh, Commonwealth hospitality and they're in the hotel business as well. And uh, he had a, he had a great, great, great career, but, uh, you know, I learned a lot from him and I learned uh, a lot about the value in business of kindness of, uh, you know, doing, you know, trying to do what's right, you know, trying to, uh, you know, you know, business at had impeccable business ethics. And I think there was just a lot of things that I kind of looked up to him as being, uh, you know. As, as being my, my kind of mentor in, in business. And uh, yeah, the, it was, I was lucky. I mean, just, you know, very lucky to have somebody like that. And even when he was, gosh, he was in his nineties, you know, when he, when he died, I sort of joking with our team and I sort of shared this with our own board. Like I, we'd have board of directors meetings and I would sit down with him before our board meetings and I would, wow. I would share, share with him some of our, our board package. And, and then he would like, he would come back and he would quiz me on, on things and he'd have such great questions and feedback, even when he was in his nineties, that it was, you know, it was, that it is was awesome. really, really valuable for me. And, and I think one of the things I, I learned from him is you never stop learning. Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, you want to be on that sort of ongoing quest, 
you know, for, you know, to try to, to try to learn. But, but yeah, I mean, I, so I'm, 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 you know, very, very lucky, very lucky that I've had a, a supportive wife that my career has taken me on a lot of travel and a lot of time away and a lot of hours. And that's not always so easy, but, but, you know, you, and, you know and travel and travel in Canada is not easy. No, it's, it's, not. it's, it's I mean, it's a big country with a lot of space in between places. Yeah. Every, everything, everything is far away in, yeah. uh, in Canada. And, uh, but, but one of the unbelievable privileges of being in the roles that I've had is the ability to see the country. Mm-hmm. Canada, as Canada, as, as the U.S., a remarkable country. Like you go across Canada and it is very different across the country, but so many people never get to see Canada. And, and the parts of Canada, some of the more isolated parts of Canada that are just so special and, and just incredible to see. And I have, I've seen it all. There's nothing, nothing is anything in Canada that we've got, you know, with our hotels, we're in about 210 markets across the country. So we're in a lot of smaller secondary and tertiary markets. And I always love, I always love doing that. I probably travel, I, I could get by with doing a lot less travel. I actually believe it's really important for me to get out and see our hotels and our franchisees and the teams in our hotels. So I do, uh, I do a lot of it. You know, but yeah, you know, one other thing I, I was, as we're talking that, uh, and I was thinking about this before we were talking, that's been through my career, really meaningful for me has been volunteer work. And it's one of the things that all, a lot of times young people will come to me and they'll ask me about, you know, you know, advice for careers. And it, it's one of the things that it's a bit, a bit of adv- advice I give only because it's been really meaningful for me. And I, you know, I started doing volunteer work and it's mostly on the charitable side, not so much on the, like the industry side back when I was in high school. And it was just, you know, volunteer. I started as a volunteer driver for the Canadian Cancer Society when I was in high school after my mom had died of cancer. And, mm. and that was it, it, you know, that was kind of my first uh, you know, foray into doing volunteer work. And when I got out of, got out of university, uh, I was invited to be on a committee at the Canadian Cancer Society. And in the course of that ultimately became over a number of years involved with the Cancer Society, became the vice chair of the Toronto district. But I was very young. Like I was, I think in my twenties at the time. And the amount that I learned in those, I would have never had the opportunities in business to learn some of the things that I learned being in those roles on committees, but even on, on boards. I, when, when we had kids, I joined the board of an organization called Canadian Feed the Children. And I spent 12 or 13 years ultimately as chair of the board. And the, the, the really interesting business issues that you need to deal with in an organization like that were a great learning experience for me. And an opportunity as I became maybe more knowledgeable, an opportunity for me to provide some of the things I'd learned in business to to organizations, you know, like that. I was involved with the Canadian Franchise Association, more on the on the industry side, and uh, you know, and 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 I, and I think those opportunities, you know, you know, for say for young people today, like don't lose sight of those because they can be wonderful mm-hmm. opportunities for not just giving back but for learning as well. Yeah, I don't think people look at it as an opportunity to learn, right? I think they look at it, you know, to your point, how do I give back to the community that's been so good to me? And that's important. And that's, you know, that's great. But I don't think a lot of people take the approach that you just brought up to saying, I'm going to learn because, again, you're surrounding yourself with other board members from different industries, different Mm -hmm. walks of life. And to your point, you're always going to learn something. So yeah, I think that's fascinating. I think that's awesome. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just for you know, for me, it was something that was really meaningful. But, uh, but yeah, no, but that's uh, you know, for me, the the journey continues. I I think the uh, the the one thing that I would say, you know, when I look back and and our career is that I'm, I'm just really grateful for just a lot of the franchisees that I've had the uh, the privilege to be able to to work with. You know, we we had I guess it was about five years ago we had our 25th anniversary of our company, and to celebrate the 25th anniversary, we created a book with the stories of. 30 of our franchisees across the country because our, our franchisees, and this is not unlike a lot of other industries, and you'll appreciate this having been in the hotel industry, they're like amazing stories of mm-hmm. how these people became hotel owners across the country. I mean, you look at the franchisees in, in Canada from the Ismaili community that came over largely in the early 70s and, you know, exiled from, you know, parts of Africa, and they came here largely with next to nothing, but as a community sort of pulled together, supported each other, and and have developed some you know great businesses that their kids and grandkids are now in, involved in and that is you know seeing that and we and we see it in the hotel space we see different evolutions of that happening all the time i mean we just yeah. uh, you know we we see we did our our storybook you know people just looked the all the different stories in, in there they said wow like you could just you could you talk about interesting stories and and most of the people that are in this had no, they they wouldn't really even have a sense for how remarkable their journey has been until we actually you know you know hired somebody to go and you know talk with them about it and dig up old photos and it was a, a great journey for us and we're, we're we're doing another one we're just having our thirtieth anniversary and uh, we're just doing the second edition of that right now so it's a bit of a bit of a labor of love for our team to be able to tell those stories of these uh, great franchisees across the country. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's just amazing to watch some of these families, to your point, come over with nothing. They'll build whatever brand you want to mention out there. And typically they'll start in the select serve segment, yeah. right? It's it's mm-hmm. easier. It's not easier, but it's, you know, less intensive food and beverage. And, the you know, the profits are pretty good once you get going. I mean, people don't realize how much money is mm-hmm. made in that select serve market. I mean, the, the yeah. margins are very good compared to the yeah. foo-foo you know, luxury and full service that has to be owned by a big yeah. entity because you couldn't afford it otherwise. But well, so it's always just amazing to see things, it, families that come across and do it, that. No, it very much is. My dad had an old expression that was one that he borrowed from Colonel Sanders. And it was feed the masses, eat with the classes. And and you think about that in the context of the hotel space. And I think it's it, it very much applies. I mean, mm-hmm. you, can, you can do very well by running hotels that are just taking care of that everyday, you know, everyday guest. You oh, know, yeah. one, one of the things is actually thinking about this the storybook that, that we did. The idea for that came out of just a, a conversation I was having with one of our franchisees over dinner when I was asking him for his story to say, you know, tell me your whole story. And mm-hmm. he kind of caught, got into the story and it was, you know, an, an interesting story. But I said to him, like, tell me, like, tell me, Tony, like, why so many of the people from your community why did you get into the hotel industry? And he said, well, he said, it was just really simple. Like we needed, it was very difficult for us to get a job because we didn't have any Canadian experience. So we needed a business and we needed a place to live. And so a hotel was a great place. And and so many of them would start with a small, might be a roadside 20 room hotel and they'd live on site. And and from there have built these enduring businesses that are just incredible to see. See, you've got me thinking now, how do I turn that book into a podcast show? So 
I may come, I may come back to you on something. I'm going to send you a copy of the book. That's a fantastic idea. But so listen, again, I, I could, I could go on for hours with you, but I know you've got uh, a company to run. So listen, I want to thank you. This has been a great chat. Great story. I, I love the, you know, you're the second franchise expert I've had on the show. I had Ray Titus. You okay. might want to check out that episode down here in the States. Okay. He's a franchise guru down here yeah. based out of Florida. And it's always fascinating to me, the franchise side of the world. So thank you for taking the time today to speak with me. I'm going to end it like I always do, folks. If it's Tuesday, let's get out there and thank people. They're going to love it and you're going to feel good doing it. So Brian, it was great to meet you. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the time. you enjoyed the show today and thanks so much for tuning in we really appreciate it if you would like to be a guest on the show so that you can thank someone for their role in your career please reach out to me via our tuesday thanks website at www.tuesdaysthanks.com remember a sincere thank you goes a long way to making someone feel appreciated and can make their day so until next time be well Be safe, and please don't be afraid to tell someone thanks. Chat soon.